0: There's only one way to do it. You need to let it grow. You need to let an amount of information unfold that you then need, if you wanted to describe that endpoint bit by bit, would be quite a lot. But if you would only want to describe the information needed to grow it, would be very little. But you can't predict from the little information what the endpoint would look like without actually growing it. And the genome is always just there. It's like a book. That's always there, and you always just need to decide what to read in that book, and to to access that book is just enormously complicated. You can't just open page two hundred fifty five. You literally need a very strange combination of say thirty different proteins that are super unlikely to ever exist at the same time in the cell. But if they do,
1: this is brain inspired. That was the voice of Peter Robin Heisinger, who recently authored the book The Self-Assembling Brain, How Neural Networks Grow Smarter. Hi everyone, I'm Paul, and today I talk with Robin about a handful of topics in the book. Robin is a neurobiologist, or a neurogeneticist more specifically, at Free University of Berlin, uh, studying, among other things, how DNA and the developmental process encodes the wiring of brains uh, in the fruit fly, Drosophila. The central theme of his book is that current artificial intelligence and perhaps uh, current neuroscience theories are leaving out an essential part of what makes us intelligent, and that's the growth and development of our brain's neural networks. And in the case of deep learning, an artificial neural network. Robin suggests we don't yet appreciate how information, which begins at a relatively low level encoded in our DNA, unfolds and increases with time and energy as our networks are formed, something Robin calls algorithmic growth. And his claim is that it's essential to include a growth and an evolutionary selection process to get anywhere close to building something with human-like intelligence, uh, if that's even what we want. So we talk about that central theme and many of the issues that arise out of it. And as you'll hear, the book is also a history lesson about the parallel yet Independent paths of AI and developmental neurobiology. Show notes are at braininspired.co slash podcast slash one hundred and twenty four. Thanks to all my Patreon supporters. Uh, If you like this sort of thing and you want access to uh, all the full episodes and to join our Brain Inspired Discord group, uh, you can do that on the website also at braininspired.co. All right, enjoy Robin. Robin, I enjoyed uh, the book immensely. So we're going to talk all about it. One of the things that uh, I was surprised about when I read it, given that I'd seen one of your lectures, was the amount... So of course, you dive into the history of AI, uh, because the book is all about how AI might be missing something, right? But what I was surprised about and thoroughly enjoyed as well was the history of uh, developmental neurobiology and how you weaved that history into uh, the history with uh, of AI and how they happened in parallel, and of course, you know hadn't really spoken to each other uh, for many years so uh, and, and you did it in a format that was sort of a storytelling format, so it was very easy to uh, digest so uh, congratulations and and thanks for writing the book
0: well, thank you so much for for having so much good things uh, to say about it. yeah, it is a unusual angle. And it's uh, because I'm coming from kind of left field, if you will, right? I'm a neurobiologist. I, um, you know, I dabbled a bit in informatics, and and uh, I dabbled a bit in philosophy as a student. But uh, I'm running a research lab, um, teaching undergraduate and graduate students, and we're publishing papers on how genes encode the information to wire a brain. And uh, so the, the the origin of this Somewhat unusual approach and of the parallel storytelling of a field of neurobiology and artificial intelligence really kind of originates with me being, I guess, somewhat unhappy with my own field in <laughs> biology because, oh. you know, we, we started many years ago in the very successful molecular revolution to publish more and more papers on, you know, individual genes, their products and their roles in how the brain develops and how it functions. And it's led to a data explosion. And you know, my, my a very good friend and colleague, uh Basam Hassam, always says, uh, you know, we're we're increasing the amount of knowledge at an unbelievable pace, but uh, the our un, our increase of understanding is not keeping up. And so so I was wondering whether we're missing something. I was wondering whether we need some kind of theory, whether we need some kind of information theoretical background. What does it even mean that the genes encode the brain? I mean, that's obviously a very loaded, strange question. And then, of course, you can't avoid in this day and age being bombarded by the news about Mm -hmm. some kind of allegedly super intelligent systems, you know, (laughs) seemingly overtaking us next week. So what do they know that I didn't? So That's when I started to feel like, okay, maybe these people know something that I don't. And I realized, and that's where the historical part comes in, that the history of AI is unbelievably fascinating. My goodness, these people have been at each other from very different fields for so many decades. And for most of those decades, they really wanted to have nothing to do with the brain or neurobiology at all. And all the successful approaches that we hear about today, this like unbelievable you know, success of AI that we have right now, is actually all based on what is called artificial neural networks. And they're closer to the brain than any approach in AI has ever been in history. So that got to be interesting, right? I mean, if they suddenly take an idea that we have been studying as biologists for so many years, and they can do with it things that we can't do, and then we feel we can also do some things that they can't do, maybe we should talk to each other. So this is how it started.
1: Ah, so I was imagining that as a neurobiologist, you saw the deep learning revolution, the neural networks, and essentially you said, whoa, whoa, they have a lot to learn from me. But in fact, it was kind of the other way around when you first uh, poked your uh, nose into it, thinking, what do they know that, that I don't know?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the... The the, the idea that, you know, oh, they should be listening to us um, is dangerously close to to ignorance in, in any kind of approach, right? Because you need to first understand what the other field is doing. And it's a very rich field. And so this is exactly why I had to go into the history. I mean, when I started, I just wanted to know, okay, what are they doing right now? What is interesting about this? And I found like, okay, deep learning is really cool. The recent approaches <laughs> in reinforcement learning make perfect sense to me. It even has an evolutionary angle. This is even more biological than anything, right? I mean, babies clearly learn with some kind of reinforcement learning, so that makes some sense. So that was all very good. But then you start to wonder, why are they doing certain things not at all that, you know, I'm actually spending my life studying. And the thing that came to the forefront at that moment in my thinking, of course, was wait, I'm a neurogeneticist. I'm studying how genes encode a growth process to make a neural network. And that thing is actually pretty smart before you start learning anything. I mean, we, you know, can talk about examples later on from the insect world mm-hmm. too. You know, when a baby is born, it's not born with a random network that starts to learn. Exactly, what all, pretty much all deep learning approaches do today. Um, there's no genome, there's no growth process, they're turned on to learn. And that made me then wonder okay, why is it that they're doing one thing that we know from biology but not the other? Why is it that they initially didn't even want to use neural networks to start with? Hmm. And when I started to understand their history, I had like so many moments of. Yeah, you know, these kinds of problems I've seen before. We had that in biology. We had a time oh. when people felt like the, the, the human brain is so amazing and our thinking and learning, you know, it got it, you know, the genome, you know, at the beginning it wasn't, of course, even not known what the genome looks like. Um, it had to be learned, right? And so this debate. On, on learning on nature versus nurture, on how much uh, can actually get into a network via a growth process and to what extent you would even need it, has been there in the neurosciences as well um, some time ago. Um, but in one form or other, it's still there. And so this is very interesting, right? So to see then the parallels between those fields, to see how um, from my perspective to some extent the AI community is actually retracing some steps that historically neuroscientists have taken made me wonder that, um, you know, there is something, again, that we need to talk about. We should. And I wondered how much we are, and it turns out there is very little crosstalk, and so this is how the book originated.
1: So I want to talk just for a moment uh, more about the book itself before we get into the ideas that are in the book, because uh, (laughs) I'm curious, for one thing, that was a very rich and detailed history that you told of, uh, the developmental process. Was that a lot of work or is that, um, was that easy to piece together? Because I, 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 know the AI history or I knew the AI history quite well because it's been told a few times, but, uh, and, and I even learned more about it through your writing. But what I didn't know about was, um, that rich history in, um, developmental neurobiology. Did you just know all that? Or was that a lot of research that you had to do to, to write that?
0: It's both. I mean it came first of course, right? I mean it is my field. Um but you are actually touch in quite an exposed nerve. I mean if we go into into if you open textbooks there is a lot of knowledge that is being communicated without communicating the field's history. Mm-hmm. And there are some debates that just appear ludicrous today, right? I mean the 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 the, the whole debate, you know, this is how the whole problem how um, many my, my many of my lectures and the book start is that people couldn't even agree whether a neuron is a physiological unit because nobody could understand how you could have so many of those things wiring together, right? And so this seems, of course, it's a completely settled debate. Of course, we know that the brain is made up of neurons and they're physiological units, and somehow they need to connect up to make something that works and appears smart to us. Um, But this you can only understand if you actually have the historical context. And of course, I knew some historical context, um, but probably not more than any other Somewhat trained developmental biologist, and when I started worrying about my own field, this actually happened before any deep diving into into AI history. And you know how, how where are we at right now? Why are we just collecting gene after gene and molecular function after molecular function and publishing more papers every year than ever in the history of developmental neurobiology before? And are we actually getting closer to understanding how that thing is put together? So when I started worrying about this and wondering about this, that's of course when I, when I initially went back in the history of where this came from. And there's a very cool story to be told. Um, that's of course in the book of, of an interesting breakpoint in history where a very famous neuroscientist, Roger Sperry, went ahead and said, you know what? The embryonic development will make a brain out of individual neurons, live with it. And there got to be molecular interactions that ultimately define the development and the growth of that network. And that was at a time in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, predominantly, when most scientists, including the famous, even more famous supervisors of, of, of this uh, gentleman, um, were on the other side of the spectrum and said, uh, you know, it got to be all somehow induced by some kind of plastic form of learning. And, you know, it was a field of psychology. Brain wiring was at that time uh, the subject of psychology and not the subject of, you know, today like molecular geneticists. They didn't even really exist <laughs> really at that time. And so so this is where it all started. And uh, it's been good and bad. Um of course we know that you know there are a lot some say an infinite number of instances of individual molecular functions oh, in different yeah. contexts in specific cells in specific animals at specific developmental stages i mean you know there's no no limit to the depth of this that you can study and publish papers on but how the genome actually does that you know famously the genome contains 1 gigabyte of data and there are people in the AI field, like Schmid, Huber and others, who actually use that as an argument in saying, look, you mm-hmm. know, one gigabyte of data, that can't encode anything. So, you know, we don't even need to look there. Clearly, we only need learning. We don't need the genome. But then again, of course, what we're all doing, maybe not looking at the whole forest at a time, but always like looking at some individual leaf or needle of, sort of just one tree inside that forest is looking at how the thing unfolds. And we do know that an apple seed will grow an apple tree. This is the job of developmental biology. And the development of the brain is no different. And so uh, this is basically where we're coming from. And this is where the history became so important and has a huge impact on what we do today.
1: So so I will read from uh, a quote from your book, I guess, to start us off here, because uh, just tailing off of what you were just uh, mentioning. This then is the core question of our workshop. What difference does it make for the intelligence of a neural network, whether connectivity is grown in an algorithmic process that is programmed by evolution versus only learned based on a designed network with initially random connectivity? So you were just talking about people like Schmidhuber um, and not to single him out because it's the entire AI community essentially that it's um, after reading your book it's 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 just a curiosity that uh, we all, I'll, I'll include myself, right? Because uh, you know, at first pass, it's like you have this brain, you have the network, and then all you need to do is learn from from there, and that's what intelligence is about. Uh, but your book makes the argument or asks the question uh, that maybe the growth process itself, from the genetic code, uh, is an important part of that process. And of course, there are debates in um, the deep learning. Field, uh, how how important you know inductive biases are, and the architectures that you use, and whether that matters. Uh, but but I would I would guess that you'd say that that's that's not enough. Yeah, exactly.
0: That's exactly what I would say. But I would also say it's a step in the right direction. You know, ideas that like like convolutional neural networks that are basically mimicking you know a little bit of the wiring of a visual cortex in mammals, um, or you know the new proposal that just made somewhat of a splash by Jeff Hawkins in his Thousands Brains, um, is of course that, you know, we got to design these things like the cortex. And then you have like all these cortical columns and then they can compete and vote and all these things, right? And these are all very good ideas. Um, But they're basically coming like like tiny, tiny steps back from like the purely random network. And of course, they're still designed. So in biology, how you got to... The cortical columns in the first place was, of course, through a growth process, and the fact that there are cortical columns contains information. It's not just you know a randomly connected network that we have in our brain. Otherwise, most of my neuroscience colleagues would be out of a job very quickly. Mm-hmm. They are studying circuitry. We're studying how the neurons are exactly put together, and it's fabulous. I mean, you can study things like like uh, motion detection. Um, So it's a beautiful example by understanding how exactly different types of neurons with certain delays and certain, you know, uh, conduction velocities and and synaptic uh, strengths, and then some state dependencies where you have some neuromodulators that whole populations of neurons suddenly have a lower threshold, all kinds of stuff. And when you see how all of this is put together, suddenly you understand you can even build a computational model based on that. And it tells you, yeah, you know, this network can see motion. But this is very different from teaching a completely random connected network, motion detection, right? So to teach the randomly connected network will not lead you to all the both cellular connectivity that is very specific that I just try to just, you know, like outlines describe, or the molecular aspects, which are um, things like I, I... even mentioned something like a neuromodulator. Um, These are molecules that are diffusing in whole areas of the brain and changing synaptic weights. And this is simply not included in the modeling of synaptic weight changes in an artificial neural network. So evolution has found solutions to problems that the brain can solve, like motion detection, like, you know, you name anything up to cognitive abilities in the human brain or down in insects. You know, my favorite example, as you probably have seen, is the monarch butterfly that flies these 3,000 miles. Right?
1: Yeah, you seem, you're crazy about butterflies.
0: <laughs> yeah, I really love those. Um, they do so much. They're like yeah. half a gram and they can do so many things. If you wanted to train, a neural network that is randomly connected to do all the things a butterfly can do to achieve butterfly intelligence. I can tell you we're far away from that. But you know without strain, this is the this is the this is the idea, right? So clearly learning from biology has become more accepted than ever in the history of AI before. Um, Jeff Hawkins famously, was unhappy early on as a as a young person before becoming a billionaire that he wanted to learn from the brain, and you know there's a whole history, and this is why I tell that history right in the book in AI research saying you know we don't need all this messy wet stuff and you know it's it's all these idiosyncratic solutions that evolution may have found in the brain. We can design something from scratch that's better, and now we're at a time where we're kind of you know dipping in. I mean, when I say we we actually talk about the AI community, deep dipping into ideas from the brain, like, you know, maybe we need cortical columns. But it's really just the tip of an iceberg because the brain is not just simply cortical columns. It is all the molecular beauty that defines how individual neurons communicate with each other. And there is so much information not just in the connectivity of a specifically wired network, but also in the molecular composition, that you cannot, if you want to simulate the way the human brain works or a butterfly brain works, just reduce to synaptic weight changes. And so this is where I'm coming from.
1: Well, I I don't know how much I agree with you that it's more acceptable now to include biological detail because there's, and you document this in the book as well, there is... um, a constant drive in the AI community to abstract out as much as possible, right? So the idea that they that you would need to include growth, and, and we'll talk more about the details there in a moment, the idea that you would need to include growth from the gene must be horrendously uh, unattractive to someone in the AI community who's just trying to get their neural network to learn something, right?
0: Yes, it's very unattractive. Actually, we, can, we did the experiment together with colleagues just how unattractive it is. Um, if you just want to learn a specific task. And this brings us to a very interesting topic, right? I mean, artificial neural networks um, based on reinforcement learning have been at this point more successful in almost any individual task a human could do that i could imagine i mean obviously they can play better chess they can do better visual image recognition they can do you know better solutions to the cocktail party problem auditory pres- whatever right so individual things you can train these things to become better if you now want to train the same network something else um you quickly have the problem of catastrophic forgetting um, and the AI community is trying to address that with, with deep learning approaches, and there are some good proposals. Now, the, the bottleneck in teaching a network any of these things is still the training, obviously, because the design is largely random, right? I mean, you may have some pre-connectivity like in a convolutional or recurrent neural network, but really the, the key bottleneck is learning. So reinforcement learning takes a lot of time and energy, to get that thing to be really good. Once it has learned it, you can just, you know, um, uh, deploy it. And then it can decide whether it still should learn anything or not. And, uh, you know, but once it has learned something, it, it just can do, right? It can recognize images. It can make predictions about, you know, who should be your spouse or your next soap. Now, if you want to do this same job for a specific task, with a neural network that is not trained by learning, but that is trained by a genome that produces the network. And then once you grow that network, you have it evolutionary selection for one that works back to the genome and iterations of this process. Then you will soon find out that the time and energy that takes is even enormously bigger. So let me, maybe it's really worth saying. One more word about this. Mm -hmm. The AI that we know today, everything in any of these big Silicon Valley companies that we're all familiar with all the stuff that we're scared of or impressed (laughs) by. It's all um, trained networks that have been trained in one or the other form, big data or reinforcement learning, deep learning stuff, right? Um, But there is an AI community that actually does a very different type of learning. Of artificial neural networks. And it works like this. You take a genome. The genome defines, you know, in the easiest case, directly synaptic weights. Mm-hmm. It's not how biology works, but that's the easiest you know, approach you can take. You can say I have one gene per synapse, if you will, right? And then you, you can basically fill the synaptic weights of a, rec- of a matrix of a, of a recurrent neural network. Um, And then you can have that thing do something. For example, let a little agent find a path through a maze or do image recognition, anything you want. And then if it did it well, then you take more of the genome that was at the base of this. And if it didn't do it well, you just mutate more of the genome at the base of this. Mm -hmm. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. Just like backpropagation is an iterative process where you train and train and train in classic deep learning. And reinforcement learning is actually very similar to the process I just told you, right? Because you only learn from the end state of the system. Mm -hmm. So, can you actually train a network not by learning, but by keeping on randomly mutating that genome that feeds the synaptic weight matrix? But that's still without a developmental process. And if you now add a developmental process, this thing gets very quickly, even for the biggest computers on earth, out of hand. Mm -hmm. You'd have a genome. Let's say, you know, few hundred genes has not even been done. I mean, maybe a few dozens. And then you basically feed that to into some gene regulatory network that may have to go through a few hundred iterations of a developmental process. That leads to the numbers that you fill in the weight matrix for the recurrent neural network. Then you finally have a network that can, you know, do a task, perform something, see whether it's good. And if it's good, it's good, you keep more of the genome. And if it was bad, you mutate more of it. Imagine this iterative process. So it's a huge computational effort. It's orders of magnitude, more computational power needed to even simulate a laughingly simple version Mm -hmm. of a genome and developmental process in an iterative evolutionary selection process. And the outcome is, at this point in time, never better than the deep learning stuff. So therefore, nobody's doing it. Right. Well, that's not quite true, right? I mean, there are some academic scientists doing it. But then the question becomes, you know, where are we in this? Artificial neural networks based on deep learning, I mean, before there was deep learning, right? Before mm-hmm. we had like this humongous bunch of data um, and, and faster computers also were not successful. That's when symbol processing logic had its heyday in AI, so maybe today we're at a time when computers are still not fast enough, maybe we need quantum computers or something to actually simulate the evolution of the growth process and neural networks, so not deep learning but 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 um, neuroevo-devo learning, if you will, of artificial neural networks, and then they suddenly will become powerful. That's one thought, and just the last thought, and then you need to stop me because otherwise I keep on talking. <laughs> It's also a big question of what we're trying to achieve. Arguably, to achieve a single task, I don't see why this enormous effort that I'm talking about here right now would be better. If you just need face recognition, it's you know the deep learning is amazing. And I don't see how this 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 like orders of magnitude, more computational effort, evolution of a neural network would do that one task better. But this, of course, brings us to the question of, you know, artificial general intelligence and where we're really going with this. Maybe you need that more, much more effort process if you want to go beyond single task artificial intelligence.
1: That was a lot that you just talked about. Maybe where we could start, uh, is the concept of, uh, unfolding information and algorithmic growth, right? So you had mentioned that there's not enough well, you alluded to that there's uh, not enough information contained in the DNA in our DNA to encode all the connections, uh, synaptic connections in our brain. Uh, it's orders of magnitude less than you would need to encode uh, the entire structure of our brain. But that through the process of uh, genes becoming proteins and transcription factors, uh, and and through the developmental process through which you call algorithmic growth, uh, that information unfolds. And that essentially encodes the uh, program that results in our connected brain. So could you uh, talk about the concept of unfolding information and algorithmic growth?
0: So the, 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 the words are the best I could find, unfolding information and algorithmic growth, but they're just putting a label mm-hmm. um, uh, on, on something that we clearly observe. Uh, we know that if we look at an apple seed, We can get all the information out that's in there. It's in the sequence of the DNA. You know, maybe some lipids around it are important. We need to know some physical laws. And you know, based on experience that you've seen it before, that if you put that seed in the ground, there will be an apple tree one day. You know what it will be look, what it will look like. So in the apple seed, there is no way to read that it will be an apple tree. Um, the only reason why we know that this is what happens is because we've seen it happen before. If you would not know, then I say <laughs> the apple seed will not reveal the secret. You can only compare it to other sequences you have and what they did in the past, but that's the same sleigh of hand, right? That's the same cheating based on previous outcomes.
1: Even if you could read all the DNA and, and know everything about the contents of the apple seed. Yeah. All
0: right. So this is what I'm saying, and this is controversial. Right. Clearly, there are more optimistic, um, molecular geneticists than me that feel like one day, if we just know enough, you know, we just will understand just how this happens. And so, um, this is what brought me to try to find out whether there is any more solid way, any mathematical way. Um, is there something in science that tells us uh, whether or not something like this can be unpredictable? that you have a simple code, right? Let's just call that one gigabyte of genetic information simple. I mean, it's not, but, you know, it's it's amazing. (laughs) But just for, you know, in relation to describe, let's put it like this, describing the DNA sequence in our genome or in an apple seed compared to describing every single neural connection in your brain or even the branching pattern of an apple tree is like, you know, it's like comparing almost nothing to an enormous amount of information, Mm -hmm. right? So clearly something happens. See, it's clearly during growth, you know, there's, there's more in your brain than you can read in a sperm and an egg. And so I try to find examples. So I talked to mathematicians and I looked in, in other fields again. And so I came across something that has actually been, you know, I've known for a long time, but it's not been, you know, obvious to me where the connection lies. And I guess it's um, a connection that, that still requires some explaining. There are examples of very simple rule sets, very simple codes that can lead to a lot of what we like to call complexity. And the example that I use then in the book uh, are cellular automata, right? Mm-hmm. Stephen Wolfram made them quite famous with his book, A New Kind of Science. And he showed that there are types of one-dimensional cellular automata. I'm not going to go into details. There's super simple rules. You can do it on math paper. It's like, you know, they're deterministic. They always produce the same thing. They're boring in many ways. But he could actually show that with a super simple rule set that I can write down in one line, you know, if this, then this, if this, then this, if this, then this, done. Um, and it's just black and white squares. You, If you keep on applying the same rule again and again and again, you'll grow a pattern that never repeats, and that will literally grow with infinite time to infinite complexity. And for one of those rules, there is actually a mathematical proof by a co-worker of Stephen Wolfram from the 90s already, that shows that it is undecidable, which is which is math speak for unpredictable. So this is actually what is funny, you know, not funnily, but I mean, it's, it's this is what is called the a uh, um, universal Turing machine if mm-hmm. it can contain in its pattern every single computation that you could possibly do in math. And this proof shows that it shows that a very very simple rule set. Can produce infinite complexity. It's the, it's the smallest known, the simplest known universal Turing machine in science today.
1: This is rule 110, right?
0: This is rule 110, the cellular automaton.
1: Which, which, by the way, I think would be a, a pretty good band name.
0: <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 110 is, um, is a, is a number, you know, that's the emergency number in Germany also. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that would be yeah. a good German band All name. All right. Yeah. So, um, Sorry. Uh, and it is, you know, it produces infinite complexity. And we know that you can't predict what comes out of it. So mm-hmm. what that means, you know, this was, I, I think I'm making it too complicated here. It's very simple. You can literally do this on paper and everybody, you know, in grade one, you could already do this, like draw line after line after line, and you will find that the pattern never repeats and it's beautiful. Um, and you may ask, well, could I have predicted? Is there any kind of math? that would allow me from just knowing the code, what the beautiful pattern in the end would look like. And now you see the analogy, right? This is what biologists and and we all would like to know. Is there any math that would allow us from an apple seed or a human sperm in an egg to predict without any previous knowledge of outcomes, what comes out of it? What brain wiring you would have? And so for this super simple mathematical concept, for this rule 110 cellular automaton, we know they cannot be any way, any analytical math to calculate what, say, row number 1,000 looks like. There's only one way to do it. You need to let it grow. You need to let an amount of information unfold that you then need, if you wanted to describe that endpoint bit by bit, would be quite a lot. But if you would only want to describe the information needed to grow it, would be very little. But you can't predict from the little information what the endpoint would look like without actually growing it. So this is why I talk about unfolding information. And this is why I call it algorithmic growth, which is you know just a, a simple description of what we're seeing here, right? It's algorithmic because you use a rule set again and again, and you grow something, and there's no shortcut to that.
1: But so in in the example of the cellular automata, this is a very simple system, right? And the idea in your book is that uh, DNA doesn't encode the endpoint, but it encodes the algorithmic the algorithm uh, to grow things. And DNA and the developmental process are way more complex than uh, cellular automata. Um, and one of the daunting things is that let's say I mean, we could go a lot of different directions here. But one of the daunting things is let's say you know your DNA encodes a protein. That protein has a what we search for is the function of that protein, right? But through the uh, time and energy in the algorithmic growth process, the quote-unquote function of that protein uh, varies depending on different contexts and different stages of development. And of course, then you have all of these things interacting. So somehow the algorithm is encoded in the DNA and development takes care of the rest.
0: Yeah. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> it's, it's a problem. It's just, it's so supremely non-intuitive, right? Right. How, but we know it happens. I mean, there's, there's no, you know, there's no magic there. We know that you have a seed, you have, uh, you have an egg and sperm. Um, and we know that given enough time and nurture, you know, something beautiful will develop and developmental biologists have just been studying how that happens, right? Instances of this, snapshots of this.
1: But in principle, uh, one cannot look at the DNA code and infer the algorithm, right? So
0: Yeah, so we actually don't know that, right? So the reason why I like this simple rule 110, and you're right, it's of course much simpler. It's ridiculously much simpler to the extent that it really is not a good model for brain development at all. It's just an example that shows... That a tiny amount of information, even deterministically, and the same rule applied again and again, I mean, the simplest possible thing, if you put in enough time and energy, can produce something of literally infinite complexity Mm -hmm. that contains everything, any possible computation. So my argument is kind of, if that simple thing already can produce infinite complexity, then we should definitely at least not be surprised. That something that's so much more complicated, like a genome with a so much more complicated and prolonged and protracted developmental process, like you know, what happens for nine months in the womb and then for many years thereafter, can lead to quite remarkable what we like to call complexity in brain wiring. So what's so supremely non-intuitive about this uh, is, where does the information come from? If the stuff in the genome is so little, and what I need the information I need to describe the, the, the network connectivity is so much. Where did it come from? And this is really the, the core of understanding the algorithmic growth process and the time and energy it takes. So there's a lot of beautiful discussions we could have now. and the physicists who are listening to this will, will know, of course, a lot about this, right? I mean, the, the fact that you can describe entropy, in many different ways and mm. find it um, in, you know, you can describe the information content of, uh, of uh, heat exchange you know, between my room and the outside and so forth. Um, the time and energy you put in, puts in information. So this is not easy to explain, but this is, of course, will we know happens, right? So it's, it's not like I'm, I'm saying something outrageous. We know that, you know, there's a seed, there's an apple tree. All you need in the meantime is time, energy and, you know, water and sunshine. So just information theoretically, what that means for brain wiring and how much information there is in a actual wetware biological neural network. I think. Should not be underappreciated. Mm. The amount of information that has grown into that thing, while you were nine months in the womb, and while you were, you know, growing up as a as a toddler and later teenager, uh, with all the characteristics that um, you have at these developmental stages that we immediately recognize. You know, nobody mistakes a teenager for a toddler behaviorally. Should not be underappreciated. And uh, neither should be learning, but you know, the, this is basically the trying to find the sources of information and then coming back to your original question of or statement about pragmatic approaches in AI that of course must try to shortcut this, right? You, 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 if you want to just make a deep learning neural network that recognizes you know that helps your business grow. Um, you you know you want it to work, and so you're not going to go through all these processes, and you don't need to. But then the question is, can that thing ever be what our brains
1: are? And um, that's where I think there's no shortcut. So you mentioned learning there and and connectivity. So I'll ask about learning first. You you consider so so the modern AI begins with learning essentially i mean there's some like you said there's uh some dealings with architecture and uh, how many units to use et etc but then the almost sole focus in deep learning is the learning process but do i have this right that you see learning as a continuum of the algorithmic growth process or do you see it as a you know is it separable it's not like so what i'm guessing is that you see um our continued learning throughout life and um, as we develop these are not separable processes from the uh, algorithmic growth process it's all one big process that's a question sorry
0: <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a it's a it's a wonderful question and it's a big distinction between what we know about biological brains and artificial neural networks artificial neural networks however close you want to make the design to the brain they still have an on switch and then there is this break you talk about and then learning starts. So there's a design period and then there's a learning period. Biological brains do not really have that. Um, there is, of course, a period when you do not yet have learning. That's when the neurons are in a state where they're not yet excitable cells. They're not yet connected. Early in embryonic development, you have like all kinds of other developmental processes that have to you know, even start making that network. So you could say... There is a break in the sense that there can't be learning yet while the connectivity develops. However, the moment the neurons start making connections, things start happening. Part of the developmental process of every neuron is that it becomes an excitable cell. They will start to spontaneously excite each other. We now know that a large part of very early brain development are activity waves that sweep through parts of a brain, both in an insect as well as in a human brain. And these activity waves are the brain learning from itself already, prior to even input. So part of the purely genetic program, no learning added, no environmental information added, part of the purely genetic program is already... That a neural network starts talking to itself, and that's part of what changes its connectivity even before you're born. And even before there's any input, the moment there is input, you're still inside the genetic program in the sense that the way evolution selected for the developmental, the genome that encodes the developmental program, is that there is a time when for development to conclude properly, certain input is absolutely needed. I mean the are horrific experiments I don't even want to tell you about to do to deprive mm. um, a human of a certain input yeah. after birth, um, and then certain things will never develop. And, and there are critical periods, as they're called in, in biology, that if then the input doesn't happen as part of the algorithmic genetically encoded growth process at that right time, if you don't you know, if you're not talked to, if you don't get visual input, or if you don't get um, auditory or factory input, certain things um, can never even be made uh, um, recovered. And they become part of the growth process. So the genetically encoded growth process continuously partakes and accompanies the learning process the moment the network is a connected entity. And this includes Activity before there is any environmental input, before learning from any environmental outside information, before any nurture, if you will. But it also includes that nurture has to be right then and right there as environmental input um, as part of that period of the growth process. Uh, And that continues our entire life
1: in one way or the other. It seems like such a delicate process that… You know, there needs to be certain things happening at certain times within, or else the algorithm um, doesn't function properly, right? And yet, uh, we also seem to be quite robust organisms. H- how do we reconcile those two things? Because, I mean, at first pass, doesn't it seem like, well, you know, if anything goes wrong at the wrong time, in the wrong place, in the wrong environment, uh, it could go haywire. And yet, um, we are surviving thriving organisms.
0: Yeah, it can actually. I mean, um, you know, the, the you of course only see the winners walking sure. the earth, right? I mean, yeah. all those experiments that evolution continuously um, makes that don't make it, uh, just simply not there. Uh, the question of robustness is a beautiful question that uh, that neurobiologists, uh, both developmental as well as functional neuroscientists, are um, struggling with, and there are, there are certain features that we have learned that are key to the robustness of this whole program. And I think the most important feature is the idea of autonomous agents, the idea that an individual neuron actually knows nothing about the brain. An individual neuron has its own algorithmic growth process. It kind of, you know, it, it, it grows an axon like the big cable that needs to connect somewhere else and, you know, just when it needs a partner to make synaptic connections with, that the partner happens to be exactly there, right? This is how the beautiful ballet of um, development unfolds. But if the partner were not there, the neuron would still run its program. And we know, for example, in this particular example, by and large, a neuron would just make actually a synaptic contact with somebody else. So it would not be quite right, but it would probably be much better than nothing. And you can early in embryonic development, you can do crazy experiments. I mean, so we work with flies in the lab, right? I mean, so in flies, when you develop part of the visual system, you can early in development, easy, go in and just kill half the cells. And then when you look at the final outcome, everything is perfectly fine again. <laughs> so it just turns out that all the remaining cells during the growth process They kind of just did what they normally do, but because there were no others that they would normally have had to compete with, which would have led to some of them dying and some of them surviving, they kind of all survive and they just fill the space. So this is very robust and it's robust because it is not a blueprint directed maker with some factory and robots that assembles it. But it is a self-assembly process of lots of individual autonomous entities. And each individual neuron, like every other cell in your body, has the capacity to encounter different environments, to encounter surprises when things go wrong during development and when things happen during normal function that is, of course, unpredictable in an unpredictable environment and deal with it. And uh, that's one of the key ideas that we know is is important for robustness. And it's a very interesting concept because self-organization is therefore absolute key mm-hmm. to the wetware neural network function of any brain um, as it is for its development. But self-organization is kind of, you know, meh. <laughs> kind of implicit in 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 artificial neural network huh. research, but slightly avoided. So you know, you could argue that gradient descent and you know parts of how backpropagation work and how neuron, neurons communicate has features of self-organization, and I think it does. But it's not a major topic in the design and training of neural networks when you look into the literature of the field.
1: I want to back up here. Uh, a lot of the uh, book is dedicated. You mentioned the, the axon growth process. A lot of the book is dedicated to describing, uh, both the history and the current science and the controversies of, of how axons reach out and make the quote unquote correct connections. Although you were just mentioning that there isn't necessarily a correct connection from the start because these are autonomous agents essentially and they self organize and end up and do okay. Before we talk about that process, thinking about the um, code of the DNA, so the book is all about the uh, eventual connectivity of the brain, right? Brain wiring. But a lot of what is in the DNA is all, must also be dedicated to metabolism, right? Because we have to survive in a far from thermodynamic equilibrium state. Do you see, is metabolism and the metabolic products, right? Uh, that are coexisting uh, with the connectivity products in that algorithm, is, is, the, meta- is the metabolic code separable uh, from the connectivity code within the algorithm, and uh, this is i 'm asking you to speculate unless you have a definitive answer. Uh,
0: I, I dare say I have a definite answer i 'd say it 's not separable. And it's not separable. This is a big discussion also in the, in the, in the, in the larger now a life community rather than AI community right. about embodiment, right? The idea of, you know, is a simulation enough? Uh, and how much do you need to simulate? You know, the, do I need to simulate the, the metabolic, you know, things happening at individual synapses or is it enough to just have, you know, a value for a synaptic weight? this kind of thing. And if you talk about cells acting as autonomous agents, they start to have, of course, their own drives and they need their own, you know, at least minimally simulated metabolism. But um, yeah, we, we, you know, there's, this is this is at the heart of a self-organizing versus a designed uh, entity. But you're asking about genes. And so if we look at genes, of course, people have been trying to find like individual genes that just tell us something right. about brain wiring. Right, I mean, this is, like, is there like a gene for this one synaptic connection? That's of course nonsense, because you know we have, depending on how you want to count, let's just say twenty thousand genes in humans, and like some you know ridiculous number of synapses in the brain. Right? So how does this work? And so then people were trying to find: is there like you know maybe it's like surface proteins that sit on one cell and on another, and then they recognize each other? And these proteins exist. But then you find that the same surface proteins you know they're also functioning in the liver or you know somewhere where like uh, you know blood vessels grow and need to branch and and do things and and you try to find you know okay this metabolic stuff is this just you know is metabolism only like Kidney, heart, and liver, or how about the brain? And then you find, like, yeah, of course, you know, most metabolic enzymes are actually expressed as particularly high levels in the brain. And it's mm-hmm. the organ that requires and, right. and uses most energy. And so basically the bottom line is that, yeah, you know, there are hearts, a few heart-specific genes and there are a few brain-specific genes. But by and large, this whole question is not very good. The idea of hoping to find you know, a gene that specifically tells me how the brain wires. There are very few genes <laughs> in the human genome that will not be turned on and off, that will not be read out in one way or another in one cell or the other during brain development. And it's all part of the algorithmic growth process. Evolution didn't care about our intuition of, say, two molecules that recognize each other and could be a key and lock for a synaptic connectivity. Even though, you know, we would love to write, we love to write papers like this as developmental neuroscientists. Look, I found another cell surface protein that's exactly on that cell. And the lock to that is another protein on the other cell. And, you know, both are genes in the genome. And this is how this one synaptic connectivity is wired. But, the, but evolution, I dare say, Really tried out any kind of mutation in regulatory sequences and coding sequences of any kind of gene. And as the growth process unfolds, you will find that a mutation in some ubiquitous, that's, you know, biology speak for expressed everywhere, uh, expressed metabolic enzyme a mutation in that thing that, let's say, changes just, you know, it increases 5% of the function. That'll turn out to be completely irrelevant for your heart and your kidney where that enzyme is well. But during brain development, there may be just this one neuron that if you increase this particular metabolic enzyme 5%, at the exact time when it is making a synaptic connection, it changes the the, the speed, say, because of the increased metabolic rate, um of the time window, so it shortens, say, the time window of, of when it can make a certain connection, and it will lead to less connection of one type and more connections of another. And that was a mild change to a metabolic enzyme that's everywhere in your body. And the only change it may cause in the outcome, completely unpredictable, but you know, evolution tries these things out, um, was a slightly different wired brain. So this is why you need all of it. You need, you know, you can't just take a synaptic weight as a number, but the information encoded ultimately in all the synaptic connections and the way to get there required an evolutionary process, selection of something that worked, that was not predictable, like rule 110, but that, you know, if you had enough millions of years to try out evolution on Earth um, and uh, evolution of brains... You can figure out adaptations and changes based on mutations in many different genes. And there need be nothing intuitive about it for what scientists would like to see.
1: So modern uh, deep learning, right, it's, it begins with a network of connected artificial units. And, you know, like we've uh, been talking about through a long process, the synaptic weights uh, become get adjusted through learning. But it starts as a neural network and a, lar- a large part of uh, what you describe in the book is the developmental process that leads to a network, which is a bunch of neurons connected. Um, and you give multiple examples, um, throughout the book uh, of, of different connection patterns that can happen depending, you know, on the sequence of, uh, of the development that happens. But And yet, uh, the focus is still on sort of the end uh, um, connectivity of the brain, that you end up with a network of neurons with connections between them. Are neurons the end all, though? Uh, do we need to consider things beyond neurons, like astrocytes and glia? Uh, is that part of the whole algorithmic growth process that, that may eventually be important for building better AI and understanding how this all works? Or Or do we really just need to focus on the network of neurons?
0: So, again, we need to come back to what we want what is it that we're we're trying to achieve to make an algorithm to predict what to buy i don't see why you would need astrocytes. if you want to have uh any kind of resemblance to what you you may want to call uh a human ai <laughs> i'm'm I'm, 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 Hesitating because I'm yeah. almost, I'm trying to use the word general artificial. You know, there's so many terms. Yes. They're all yeah. undefined, right? I mean, artificial general intelligence. Nobody knows what the hell that's supposed to be. Yeah. And that has a lot to do with there being no definition for intelligence. And, you know, the idea then that you want to have a human intelligence is very different to me from human level. I don't even know what level is supposed to mean, right? <laughs> I can measure a level on playing chess, but I cannot measure level on being, you know, Paul. You know, how, how polished is my intelligence? And <laughs> I think many different, um, people will be more similar or less similar to your individual type of intelligence. And, um, that requires your entire brain.
1: One of the, uh, seemingly important features of brains is the feedback loops that occur within the, if we, we can just stick with neural networks. Uh, the brain is a highly, highly, highly recurrent, Uh, neural network and AI is taking this on deep learning is taking this on and, and, you know, people are using recurrence. Um, but my, my question is thinking back to the algorithmic growth process and a self organizing system. And, and actually in the book, you talk a lot about levels. So going to the DNA level, then, uh, it is interesting. And I'm I'm going to ask you if there's a deeper principle involved here. Uh, it's interesting that an enormous amount of DNA is devoted to uh, feedback in the form of regulatory uh, proteins that um, feed back onto the DNA and regulate what's being uh, encoded by the DNA, transcribed, I should say, harking back to my own molecular biology days, trying to remember the words. Um, <laughs> and then through the developmental process, it's it seems to be that uh, these feedback mechanisms are also... Uh, you know, like a majority of the processes. So, is this a deeper principle that, um, within algorithmic growth, to have a robust system? Um, that you ju- that feedback is the main thing.
0: I think so. It is a very important thing. I mean, this has been recognized. You know, we can go back to the old cybernetics days, right? Mm-hmm. This is Norbert Wiener um, and others who 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 first. Formulated and and quantitatively worked on ideas of feedback and how they, uh, determine self-organizing systems. Um, very specifically to, to the example you give and going back to, to, you know, everybody's biology 101, right? The, the genome doesn't change by and large. Um, From, you know, once the, 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 the sperm has met the egg, you're kind of done. I mean, that's your genome and every single cell in your body has it. And it's the same genome in every single one of your cells. And of course, it, you know, what, what makes a cell in your, in your, in your eye different from one in your heart is that different parts of that genome have been read out during a developmental process. And that process, as we already discussed a little bit earlier, never stops. Um, We know in the brain when it comes to learning that uh, to form long-term memory requires the feedback going back all the way to the genome, new transcription of the uh, mediator of what will become proteins, the famous RNA, and then making new proteins. And then those proteins get incorporated into whatever molecular function you need to change the physiology of the cell. Many of the proteins that get this way read out from the genome are proteins that themselves have this funky property of binding back to the genome, which then leads to yet another different type of protein being expressed. And, you know, maybe it's not one, maybe it's a different thousand again. And then one of those thousand is again one that binds back to the DNA and changes it. So both the internal program that keeps on running changes the cell continuously in a feedback process, and that's part and parcel of any developmental growth process. But also, the environmental input, once you have a neural network, mm. will feed back to that genome. And the genome is always just there. It's like a book that's always there, and you always just need to decide what to read in that book. And to, to access that book, it's just enormously complicated. You can't just open page 255. You literally need a very strange combination of, say, 30 different proteins that are super unlikely to ever exist at the same time in the cell. But if they do, then a particular gene combination, you know, these 231 genes or something will be transcribed and you will have a new state of the cell. And this is, of course, what happens all the time. And none of the cells, I mean, very few cells. There are a few cells that actually are very silent in our bodies. But most cells in our bodies never, ever stop that feedback process, right? If you have an injury in your skin, it goes all the way back to changing what will be transcribed. um, Cells in your heart and, of course, cells in your brain. So the idea of a feedback to the genetic information and what will unfold as a next step this is basically what all of biology and all of biomedical research is about we're continuously studying when and how what kind of genes get expressed and this is such an enormous field you know even with this only laughable 1 gigabyte of base pairs in the genome that's not much information if you want to write it down Easy, one gigabyte. But the information that can, just in one or two iterations of any of the 20,000 genes that are being expressed change, what will be expressed next is just a combinatorial explosion <laughs> that gets out of hand like almost immediately and kind of ensures that researchers will never be out of having something new to study.
1: I mean, it makes sense that AI researchers would want to avoid all of that mess.
0: Yes. which is why you can't design it. So the only way you can deal with that mess is you have to give up control over the design. You have to program it literally by making random mutations and hope for the best. And if they're not good, then what comes out of it will be just not as good in the outcome. And evolution didn't know, but evolution will just select against it. And if what comes out of it is better, then you know you keep some of these new randomly tried out mutations, and you program something better. Because remember, rule one ten. You know if you know that's a proposal, but you know we just take it for 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 um, what it's worth now as a as a as a hint that it may just be just as unpredictable how the genome encodes. You know. Uh, what comes out of a given genome without having prior outcome information. There's no other way to program this. And, you know, if you do this, then it would be nice to at least keep it, you know, not hyper multidimensional, right? To at least have only a few genes and a few interactions. And, you know, then it's still a lot of computational effort to simulate that. To basically do this experiment And for every single slightest random change to see what comes out of it, to do this entire effort of, you know, nine months in the womb and then, you know, all those crazy teenage years where you just don't (laughs) know what you want. And then finally sitting here in a podcast, that's not what you would like to do if you have a pragmatic job to do
1: in programming a neural network. In the book. I guess, I guess you get a little philosophical uh, about generality and specificity, talking about the growth and development process and how uh, different proteins are used in different contexts at different times in different environments. And what we want to do as humans to understand what's happening is we want to have a very general principle, right? But then it's really difficult to say, what, well, you know what? I'll just read uh, what you write in, in the book. This is a bit of a conundrum. We can choose between fewer general mechanisms that explain more instances less or many less general mechanisms that explain fewer instances better. Where we draw the line for generality is anybody's guess. <laughs> and this is a recurring theme of, you know, you also talk about levels and what's the right level to explain a given system and and so on. Uh, I don't know could you could you just comment on that balance between generality and specificity and that conundrum so
0: in 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 our field of developmental neurobiology, um, you know it's funny how papers are written, right? I mean, of course everybody is studying like a super specific system. I mean, you know, we study flies and some other people study mouse and a specific neuron at a specific developmental stage where it makes a certain choice and you understand how molecularly it does that. And so, of course, every single one of these scientific publications about a process like this then has to say, you know, we are looking at this super specific thing. But then the hope is, of course, always, yeah, you know, we're looking at the super specific thing, but really, it's very general, right? I think we found something in our specific instance of the problem that tells us something how this generally works. And so, you know, everybody does that. Everybody then writes like, you know, this gives rise to a potentially general principle of brain wiring. And the classic ones are, of course, the attractive or repulsive molecular interactions, and um, they're clearly part of how neurons interact and how brains are wired. You know, these are these are words that scientists use, but of course, generality is as you know the the, the, the sentence you just read. I hope kind of you know suggests they're not black and white. I mean, what does it mean? Like, you know, this is a super general principle. I mean, I can give you the super general principle that everything that happens is read from DNA into an RNA and then into a protein, and then the proteins interact, and zoom, you got a brain. That's a really general principle. And everybody will agree. I mean, you know, this is what happens. The feedback stuff that we've been talking about. This is a general principle. It's a general principle that you have continuous feedback of the proteins, which are the products of the genome onto the genome itself to change what next will be read out from the genome, general principle. But of course, if I phrase it as general as that, it tells me very little about how this one neuron made a synaptic contact with another neuron. So there, I need to become a bit more specific. And then the question is, you know, how specific do I have to be about every single molecule that is there right then and you know at the right place and at the right time to put this thing together to understand this instance of the problem and then still i want to say yeah but this is now a general principle <laughs> so it's just a you know i'm not sure it's very philosophical it's a, it's <laughs> it's just an observation that 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 we have when we're trying to understand any system right and you can always make a very general statement that's almost certainly true but really then not very helpful anymore Or you can make a very, very specific statement that's really helpful to understand that specific thing. But then, of course, it's not going to apply anymore to every other, you know. There are things that every neuron has, every, every development of a synaptic connection has in common, and then there are things that must be different. In the end, the idea that you need all of it, that you do need every single one of those molecules that have to interact, that unfold specifically at some point differently at every single synapse in the brain, such that every single one is in some way different from any other. Is irreducible if you want to have that thing in the end, the brain. And so the 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 the, the, the selling point of yeah but we're looking only at generalities um, is helpful to a certain extent but at some point we just have to appreciate that it's really an arbitrary choice how deep we look at any given synapse and at any given neuron
1: well toward the end of the book you argue that uh, so you talk about whole brain emulation and you also talk about the Brain AI interface that uh, is oncoming with current companies trying to do this, like Neuralink, etc. But you argue that whole to emulate a whole brain, you actually need to do it from start from the molecular level. You need all of those details, right? Um h- How strongly do you believe this, and have you received a ton of backlash on this? <laughs>
0: I how strongly do I believe I mean the the data just shows I mean this is uh, I try strong. to avoid to believe <laughs> I try to believe anything really um but I'm very happy to be proven wrong the biological systems that we study are just that like that right if you take out any component at any point you have surprising uh, implications. And as we discussed earlier, this is exactly how evolution programs a brain. So if you take any component out, if you simplify it in any way, you can still get something that's amazing, but it's not going to be that thing anymore. So if you want human intelligence, you know, the argument is you need every single one of those molecules. You can't take any of that away. That doesn't mean that you can't produce something more intelligent than a human in many other ways. It's just not going to be a human intelligence. So, um, In terms of backlash, um, the idea is, of course, not very well received by the more pragmatic um, camp of uh, uh, deep neural network developers. Um, But they don't mind really all that much because they know that what they're doing is amazing. They Mm -hmm. know that what they're doing is successful in what they're trying to do. And, you know, it becomes a little bit philosophical again, then to talk about where the whole journey is going. So where I'm, so I'm, I don't think there's, so I'm not actually clashing with any of these amazing people who are developing, um, neural networks. I think we're all equally impressed with those. Where I am genuinely clashing is with the prediction of where therefore inevitably current technology of neural networks has to go. The notion that clearly, the next thing that happens is an even more intelligent thing. And the more intelligent thing will have this, this enigmatic property of being able to produce a yet more intelligent entity. And therefore, then we have super intelligence and runaway intelligence. And we have the famous omega point, and we have singularity, and then they're all <laughs> going to take over. So yeah, you know, I disagree. We are, we're not just far from this, we're just not even Anywhere near the right path to anything like that, and uh, the argument has a lot to do with what we understand about what it means to make an intelligent system. The key argument um, I would make <laughs> against this whole singularity debate, if this is where our journey is going right now, <laughs> on which I'm not an expert at all, right? But I mean, uh, I'm coming from another side, and so I'm just I'm just raising a voice, a critical voice here, and uh, is that um, there's no example anywhere in the known universe of an intelligent system producing a system that is more intelligent than it. Our entire discussion that we just had circled around the idea that evolution is the only thing that can program a thing like our brain, precisely because of the unpredictability of Rule 110 and what the outcome is, and therefore you need the entire unfolding thing. So. The the notion that just because something is even more intelligent than us, it will automatically, inevitably have that enigmatic ability to produce a yet more intelligent thing. I don't see why at all. I mean, why are we not able to make something more intelligent than us then? And, and we're not. I mean, there is no example of that in history. Um, that's the first major criticism. And the second major criticism, if you read a book like Superintelligence, um,
1: I don't know, I don't know that I recommend reading that book. I, it was a rough one. Yeah. For I, me. I,
0: I, interesting. Um, I, 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 agree with you. I mean, but, um, you know, it has some, it, it, it tickles the, the senses and the excitement about the future as it has always done, right? I mean, there is an into- entirely, <laughs> absolutely unproductive branches of so called science that have been dealing with this ever since Werner Vinge and this whole, you know, superintelligence thing came up many decades ago. Um, they haven't produced anything. They've just been talking a lot and making a lot of money. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, for example, Bostrom desperately needs and just glances over in like three sentences in order to copy your brain is just a brain scanner. All right. Right? You just scan your brain and you get the information out and then you can take that information and make another one. Well we have just been discussing uh you and me the entire time that we don't even know what information we need to what molecular level in order to have a brain that actually functions so 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 what is it that you are supposedly scanning in theory at least which is practically absolute pipe dream absolute pipe dream but in theory at least you could do like a like uh you know molecular scanner that takes every single molecule and mm-hmm. makes a copy of that and then you have that other brain but that's of course not what they mean they 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 all mean that yeah clearly it will be it got to be enough to have something like say you know states of synapses and some digital representation thereof that's a pipe dream
1: so i i'm taking it you're not a fan of the idea that one could slowly let's say let's let's go with neurons right replace our neurons with Uh, mechanical neurons um, very slowly and then we would have a a functioning brain that is half or you know what however many uh, however much neurons make up our brain right that uh, that wouldn't be functioning well that we're not anywhere near the uh, sophisticated level that it would take to create an artificial neuron that would that would um, be able to function holistically
0: well i don't want to be as critical as that quite. I'm actually very optimistic and very impressed with current machine brain interfaces. Mm-hmm. As you know, we can now um, do extracellular, like, you know, little electrodes and thousands of them into, say, somatosensory cortex. And that'll allow somebody who has lost the ability to move an, an, an arm or a leg to, to move a prosthetic device. And uh, this kind of technology is super. I mean, it's fantastic and it's going to improve and it's going to get better. And it makes perfect sense for companies like, you know, there's the BrainGate initiative. There is Neuralink that, of course, you know, because Elon Musk made more headlines, but um, it's not really all that new even.
1: No, it's not. You didn't roll your eyes there. I, I was expecting an eye roll. I often no no, eyes, no no but, no no. Yeah. I
0: mean, I'm I'm. I, yeah, I'm actually trying to be positive here. right? Yeah. I mean, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm. I'm really. I love these approaches. I think it's awesome that they're doing this. And of course, what it's what it's designed for, right? Is um, if we just leave the, the 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 science fiction out, is at the moment tetraplegia, like patients who yeah. really can't move their arms or legs, and you know the locked-in syndrome uh, patients and so forth. <laughs> if you can have any bionic device. Um, that communicates with the brain that helps these patients bring it on, yeah, and if you 're blind and you can put a, a little camera in front of your eye and connect it to the visual cortex, and you can you know you 're not going to see as you and I are, but you see at least something again it 's fantastic, and there is no reason to not assume that this is going to become you know exponentially better in the next years i 'm sure it will it 's going to be wonderful. And it's going to come with its own challenges, and there's going to be some critiques, and you know, will other Borgs now finally coming? And there's going to be some concerns, and there's going to be some failures, and there's going to be some successes, and you know how any technological advance goes. And it's all good. It's all it's all part of it. So this is going to happen, and it's going to be great. But this is not what we had been discussing, and this is not what Bostrom talks about when he has a brain scanner to take and make a copy of your brain. We're talking about, you know, this is, uh, can you get, do you even know what kind of information you would want to get out of a brain to make that brain or to make any brain? You know, what makes Paul, Paul? You know, can you just copy that and then another person can be Paul? Um, This is a whole other level, the amount of information we're talking about here is um, something that we really just don't even understand. Yeah, And if you just want to bring it on, on a very technical basis, right? I mean, when we're talking about a few thousand electrodes and all these things do, it's super impressive. But, you know, these are extracellular electrodes somewhere in a brain region where no one knows what the hell these neurons are doing, Uh, individually, where individual neurons can die and everything is fine. And you just get field potentials, as it's called, from like these areas of the brain. This is not the same thing as neurons that are intricately wired via all the molecular glory of synaptic connectivity inside an actual brain. They're valiant approaches and efforts and they're, they're, they're to be applauded and they're going to be Big successes, but they are not a path to making a human brain.
1: So, Robin, there are uh, a ton of other topics that we could go into from the book. Um, I'm aware of the time, though. What, one of the uh, one of the, the cases that you make in the book is uh, a, a case for the utility of cognitive bias, right? So, I'm not going to ask you about that. But what I'm going to ask you about. Um, thinking about cognitive bias is during the process of writing the book and, and thinking about these things. And, you know, in the beginning, we were talking about what led you down this path. H- has your view of intelligence changed uh, through this process? Or is your cognitive bias uh, stuck where you had this, the same view of what intelligence is, and what it means, etc. Uh, from since the before you were writing the book?
0: You know, the, the embarrassingly safest answer is that I, I can't possibly know because I'm sure I'm, I'm somewhere stuck, right? And I'm, you know, caught in my own brain, in my own biases, in my own growth history, right? So I, I come to the topic of biases through the growth history, right, which is, which is um, uh, serendipitous and idiosyncratically individual and uh, makes you you and me me and of course new information coming into a brain is not compared on an even footing with the information that is already there i mean we know this um and that has a lot to do with what you know how you have used your brain in the past um and let's just not go into all the examples that leap to mind right now <laughs> about uh, about you know data unbiased um, yeah. beliefs that people uh, have right now this is how the brain works so you know, um this is a dangerous uh area to be in. You know, they're actually I mean this is not my field, but they're there there they're there amazing experiments in psychology out there that actually show that people who are trying to not think about these things and people who are not trying to worry too much about themselves are actually more successful. <laughs> you know, to be ignorant yes. to your own yeah. uh, you know, you can look up these things like the embarrassing uh questionnaires. So it's a very difficult a dangerous area to go in, right? To the, you, you can go and spiral down in self-doubt very easily um, if you question data-based every single part of your growth history based on a brain that happens to function based on that growth history. So, um, has my view of intelligence or uh, any other aspect of the book changed?
1: Yeah. Well, not so the, the way that I asked the question. It sounds like. I'm asking, what was your view before and what is your view now? That's not actually what I'm asking because, you know, like you've already said, we don't really know what intelligence is. What I'm more asking is, do you feel like your approach to understanding intelligence has changed throughout the process? So you can answer, I thought this before and now I think this, but that might be an impossible question, of course.
0: I think, I think I've become more humble I mean if I if I dig into my idiosyncratic past, um I remember being a young twenty something year old scientist who thought he knows everything. <laughs> but that's what got you to where you are. I've never been more insecure <laughs> than ever in my life than I am now. Um you know, maybe that's a good thing. I'm yeah, it got me to where I'm exactly. Um I'm humbled. The, the, the process of writing that book and, and, and making the connections that I try to make is a humbling experience mm. because you have these moments when you realize parallels in history. You see that all these things have happened before and you find these references in people who have thought these thoughts before. Um, there's so much out there. There's so much beauty and so much knowledge in the literature. People who have, you know, If you just go into what people thought, I could have gotten completely lost just in the cybernetics years between the 40s to 60s and and all the thoughts that that, that people back back then had, like uh, Ross Ashby and so many others. And um, it's humbling, right? Because then here you are and you're writing this book based on, you know, there got to be something that we need to talk about because we should learn from each other in the AI and neuroscience communities based on the idea that you know we have a genome and you don't. And then you dig into this and it's of course a bottomless pit. (laughs) And so many thoughts have been thought uh, have been thought before. And I'm with every minute that I'm spending on a project like this, changing my brain in a certain direction and not another. And time is so scarce. Yeah, I'm I'm running out of time every day, as I guess we are right now in our conversation. You know, if I want to investigate something, I need to write this chapter. You know, the temptation to just get lost and and dive into this uh, infinite depth of almost infinite depth of knowledge that is out there is very humbling. And so then you you know you you kind of I find myself then. Disciplining myself and saying, okay, I have one week for this thing and I have one week to interview people and to learn about this. And, you know, this is how far I go. And, and of course, if you do it well, you must be after this one week at a state where you realize, Oh my God, there is so much more right. than <laughs> I initially even thought that could be known that it must necessarily be humbling.
1: So one of the things that you did allow yourself to dive into in the book is uh, Roger Sperry and his work and also Mike Gaze. And you talk about their differing uh, ideas in the book and go into some depth about it. Uh, Maybe the last thing that I'll I'll ask you, you talk about how there are differences in scientists, right? Some are more vocal and some are quieter. Mike Gaze was a a quieter scientist who didn't self-promote as much. And not necessarily that Roger Sperry self-promoted, but he was more opinionated and willing to vocalize those opinions more. Both great scientists, right? I think it's fair to say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, uh, how self-promotional as a scientist should one be? So now, you know, I'm asking someone who's written a book and needs to promote it as well, right? Or, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll sell some copies, right? But is it better to be wrong and popular or, or well-known, or is it better to be right but unknown? some career advice for 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 those oh
0: my god this is so difficult i can tell you from the bottom of my heart that i did not write this book with the intent to um uh you know make it uh, a new york Times bestseller i would i would like it to become and i'm actually delighted to see that it is being picked up more than i initially could have even hoped Um, So, it's been doing very well, and I'm very, very happy about that. But, um, you know, writing the book is one way of being vocal. But the example of scientists you give right now is is also about just how you present data. There is no way in science to present data without interpretation. Mm The way you present it, the claims you make, bringing us back to the discussion we had before about generality, um, but also the manner in which you do this, is uh, has an enormous influence on how it is perceived. And I'm afraid that there are many examples in the history of science where a really good idea and a person who actually got something right has not been corrected to this day. We always say that science self corrects in the end, and I believe to the extent that I'm capable of believing anything, that, that you know, is likely true in you know the, the limit of infinite time. But it's scary how many processes, uh many ideas right, have not been corrected and people actually got forgotten, although they they said the right thing right. um for that reason. So this is very tricky. I can tell you that I basically did everything wrong. I did write the book, so I, I, maybe that's, you know, in itself something right, but, um, because I always felt that science should be something that is promoted by the value of the science itself, which happens through scientific publications and peer review and then reviews about that work and discussions within the scientific community based on scientific publications themselves. Um, I, until, I think two days ago or so, didn't even have a Twitter account. Oh, you're on Twitter now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really. So I, we made an account for my lab. So we just published a beautiful paper, 21st of December. And so I decided, you know, let the Hiesinger lab has now a Twitter account so that we can at least tell our colleagues we published this paper. But yep. this is literally, you know, I've sent one tweet in my entire life. Um That's a really bad idea in this day and age. (laughs) If you want to write a book and promote it, and if you want it to sell well, you better have a good following. You better have a Facebook presence. You better have a LinkedIn account. You better have uh, an Instagram following. And I literally have none of these things. That's great. Not even LinkedIn. You've caved in now. Well, so we <laughs> see. This is the question. Yeah, you know how 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 my, how morally, you know, I don't want to be morally superior, right? I mean, I don't want to. It's just choices we make, and so um, yeah, there are ways how you can try to sell whatever you want to sell more. And clearly, I have not tried. I mean, we're, you know, there is no advertisement. There is no. Uh, twit, there's no tweet, there's no advertisement, there is no Facebook, there is no Instagram, there is no, there's nothing about this book um, other than that, you know, here it is. This is what I wanted to tell you. I did this bit of work. I put all my heart and a lot of work in it over three years researching the history mm-hmm. and the current state of how developmental neurobiology and artificial intelligence see the information problem the question of how does information get into a neural network? How does a neural network grow smart? And this is what I wanted to do. And I wanted to contribute this, and I'm proud of it. And now, you know, live with it. And if somebody wants to read it, and it develops its own life, you contacted me, and you're asking me questions that belie, you know, a deep knowledge even of, of many of the ideas in this book. And so that makes me super happy. And maybe that's better than a short tweet, you know?
1: Well, Robin, you should be proud of the book. Um I, I didn't mention the way it's laid out is a series of ten seminars. And um before each seminar, uh you have this you have these uh, different um characters like neuroscientists and a robotics engineer and um you know various personalities um dialogue with each other. So in gerdel Escherbach, Hofstadter uses this kind of form but it really doesn't work like it was kind of, with the tortoise tortoise in the hair, i believe oh really uh not for me i thought it, I, you liked oh, interesting. it interesting to me it's just it, actually, yeah. But on. honestly
0: i have to tell you it's been 20 years ago it's been 20 years since i read it so okay. I, maybe i should look at it again uh, it's uh, a bit uh, different so what yeah. Hofstetter did in good bach uh, is that that he used he, you know, he does this really fancy funky thing where where they actually talk like in the it like a canon of Bach or so, right? So it's yeah. it's very symmetric and it kind of, um, and you know, it also just probably serves a little like relaxation, right? Mo's purpose <laughs> that, that, you know, between like heavily loaded chapters, there it's nice to, to, to relax a bit. Um, in, in the self assembling brain, uh, the, the semi, the, the, the dialogues, uh, are different. They, uh, have a different origin and a different idea. Um, the, the reason why they're in there, they were not in my original book proposal mm. and they were not in my original draft. The reason why they're in there is because this is what my notes looked like. Yeah, you know? yeah. So when I got dissatisfied with my own field as we started this discussion, right, and uh, I felt like it can't be that we're just studying molecule by molecule, building a parts list, and we don't even know what the endpoint is. And you know, I'm not sure um, what we're missing there, but I wanted to know what could be out there. So I just started to go to other conferences. I just, you know, went to an artificial life conference and just, you know, let's see what these people are saying. Right. And, and it was, it was eye opening. It was beautiful. And I met amazing colleagues that I'm working together with right now. And I had discussions with them. And so then whenever, and of course, then when you already have the idea of the book in your mind and you go to this conference and you just, you know, I chatted (laughs) up people. So I targetedly went, (laughs) I come to you and then I just, you know, start to have a discussion. And of course I ask them certain questions and then, you know, some people just are amazing and you just get into this. And then I would always run back to my hotel room and just write down the conversation. And, you know, so as to not to lose the, the arguments, as to not to lose, you know, I asked him this, and then he said that. And I asked her that, and then she actually said, that's not even a good question. You need to do this, 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 and that. And so it was very clear that, you know, people are always talking based on their own growth history in their own worlds, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in the beginning, these discussions are very tricky, right? Because I'm asking one thing, but I'm getting a completely different answer and vocabulary that I'm not necessarily understanding. And then I did this in my own field and, you know, I could ask the same questions. And so I basically started to have, so I had a lot of notes from discussions and all these characters were there. There's the robotics engineer, there's the developmental geneticist, there's the neuroscientist.
1: Was that, uh, was that more fun to write, easier to write, harder to write than the rest of the text? So
0: this is where I'm just getting it, right? So the, 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 initially I didn't write it at I tried to get the essence from my notes and I tried mm. to write like a normal book. Yeah. And it, it was very difficult because what you lose is the, the way they talk coming from a different place, mm-hmm. right? If I say something as a developmental neurobiologist and try to describe something and, 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 and a deep learning expert tries to talk about it, we, we talk differently. And the way we talk is just loaded with our own history and our own way of, of talking. And the way we even then try to communicate becomes quite interesting. <laughs> and it takes time for us to find each other. And so this is what happened, right? So I had these notes, I had a discussion, I tried to distill it. But, you know, just to circumscribe basically where people are coming from is so much harder and cumbersome, and it didn't read well, that in the end, I just felt like, you know, just let these people speak. And so, I just started to write the discussions between those people and it was much easier hmm. because then, of course, you know, the developmental geneticist can say these outrageous things that I wouldn't even as an author dare to dare to write in a book because right. you know, I think this right. is like, you know, hardcore is too much. You know, it's not that deterministic and so forth. But as a character, I can have a developmental geneticist say all these crazy things um, because that's what people are saying. Yeah. And then I can have a robotics engineer, of course, come in and say, you know what, we don't need all your wetware, and it's all nonsense, and we can do this all much better. You know, I can, I don't need a bird with all this stuff. I can make an airplane that flies much faster. But these things, to say these things, is best said if you have characters who who are themselves and have their own growth history, if you will. And then, of course, that became a beautiful challenge over 10 dialogues to have them find each other, Right. So in the first dialogue between them, they are, they're, you know, they're all talking cross-purposes, right? They're all just nobody understands each other and they don't even appreciate each other. And so, of course, what I hope happened to them is that in the end, they understood each other a bit better.
1: Well, Robin, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for uh, unfolding information with me here today and, and spending your time and and sharing it with uh, the podcast listeners. You'll be getting a tweet from me soon about the book. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to retweet that. From okay, my yeah, account. that's... That, oh, might just
0: be, that might just be the second tweet that I will ever have sent him.
1: You are on top of your game, sir. So <laughs> thanks, Robin. It's been fun. It's been awesome. Thank you very, very much. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.
0: The stair-